Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, the f*** did he know? Thursday edition PFTPM, just a few days away from the return of PFT Live. Chris Sims will be going back to the NBC Sports Group studios in Stanford, Connecticut. I'll be upstairs in my normal studio, and we'll do it two hours every day indefinitely until next year's hiatus, assuming that we will have, you know, games to talk about. But even if there aren't games to talk about, there'll be something to talk about. This is supposed to be the time nothing's happening in the NFL and everything's happening. And if you're a fan of the Washington franchise, this week was already big enough with the news that the name eventually will be gone. And by eventually, I mean sooner rather than later. But otherwise, Washington fans and really fans throughout the NFL have been bracing for a story from the Washington Post that will be negative in some way as it relates to the Washington team. And we've been talking about this this week. I've been writing about it. I've caught wind of some effort to get former employees to talk about issues relating to the culture, behavior, et cetera. And there's all sorts of crazy speculation on Twitter. And it got so bad that the team actually has gone out and hired an outside lawyer, Beth Wilkinson, to come in and perform an investigation of the team's procedures and protocols and culture, et cetera. Now, I've tried to refrain from calling this an independent review because there's nothing independent about it. They will call it independent. But when Daniel Snyder ultimately is paying for this, the lawyer who is doing the review has a client, the person who is paying the bill. The lawyer has a duty to look out for the best interests of the client. This, to me, based upon how it was reported initially by Adam Schefter of ESPN, the way that the wording was selected, this feels like it's going to be an effort to draw a box around things that may have happened in the past, to blame those things on people who no longer are with the team, and to ultimately hold Daniel Snyder harmless and unaccountable for anything that has happened. It's all in the past. We've investigated the things that have happened in the past. We have explored the things that former employees have done, and we now have procedures in place to ensure that this kind of thing does not happen again. And as I suggested earlier today, I suspect the final report, to the extent that there is transparency and it's made available for people to review, it will say, for example, Mr. Snyder had no affirmative knowledge and no active involvement in whatever it is that may be discovered when this outside lawyer comes in to do a review that will not be independent. They will call it independent. It is never independent. It's only truly independent if a third party is paying for it, if the lawyer comes in with a blank slate, go find out what happened and report back and make recommendations about what should be done. And we have no preconceived notion of what those recommendations should be. We have no advanced determination of where we would like you to finish. And I mention all that because the greatest example in recent years of that kind of of independent analysis was the Ted Wells report for Deflategate. They knew where they wanted Ted Wells to finish and Ted Wells started there and worked his way backward to justify the place where 
he believed the people paying his bill wanted him to be. And, and that's my opinion. I'm not saying that's a fact, but that's my opinion based upon reasonable analysis of the evidence and the Wells report and everything else. I believe that he went into this either expressly told this is where we want you to end up or he got the impression. See, smart lawyers will get the impression of what the person who pays their bill wants. And if that lawyer wants to get future assignments from that client, well, you better find a way to give the client what they want. And there's a lot of half sentences. There's a lot of not so subtle winking and nodding that nudges the lawyer toward what it is that the person who is responsible for making the assignment and ultimately paying the gigantic bill from the law firm wants the lawyer to do, period. So I don't have a whole lot of faith that this review is going to be anything other than an effort to turn the current situation into chicken salad, insulate Daniel Snyder against having to sell the team, and we'll see if it's good enough. That's my guess. And if he does have to sell the team, it really would be something because Ron Rivera, the coach in Washington, would become the first coach ever to have two owners involuntarily sell on his watch. Hell, he may be the only one who ever had it happen once in the NFL, at least in recent years. But Jerry Richardson was forced to sell several years ago, and now it very well could be. Based upon how big this story is, and I'm currently told Thursday night is the target. I was told Tuesday. I was told Thursday. I'm now told Thursday night. And and look, this, this isn't the Washington Post trying to, to tease us or to build interest or generate clicks, although it's not bad for business for, for the Washington Post website for, for people to constantly be checking it to see if the story is dropped. But this is about dotting I's, crossing T's, making sure that everything is nailed down, making sure that every party who is named in the story has had an opportunity to respond, to provide a comment, especially now that there is a very well-known litigator who is on the scene. Because this may also be not just a review of what's happened with the organization over the past however many years. This may be a little bit of the, 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 the showing the sword a little bit and, and making sure that anyone out there who may be inclined to say anything at all that may be negative about the team understands that they may have to deal with some sort of litigation from Daniel Snyder and the Washington franchise if there is enough negative fallout that comes from whatever it is the Washington Post is going to report, whether it's tonight, whether it's tomorrow, whether it's next week, whether it's whenever. It's clear now that Daniel Snyder and company are bracing for it. And we'll see what it ultimately is. And I'm sure we'll have more to say about it, possibly as soon as tomorrow when we do our last PFT PM before we continue with PFT Live. Dak Prescott, Cowboys quarterback, with comments to USA Today after it became clear that he would not have a long-term contract. He plays under the franchise tag this year. There was a tweet from his brother yesterday suggesting frustration on the part of the family and maybe an idea that Dak Prescott is not going to be with the Cowboys for very long. Prescott said, I'm a Cowboy and couldn't be happier. Well, he's a Cowboy now. He's a Cowboy this year. It's determined for 2020. What isn't determined is what happens next year. And I've had so many fans say, oh, Dak Prescott shouldn't assume he's going to make $37.68 million next year. The Cowboys may not be able to afford to tag him again. They may not want to tag him again. Okay, fine. Number one, they're going to have to find another quarterback if that's the case. Number two, he goes to the highest bidder. See, he, he's 
a winner here either way. He's getting $31.4 million for this year. He still makes a decent amount of money. And by decent, I mean in the seven figures off the field in endorsements. He's got the money to buy an insurance policy that protects him against a catastrophic injury that would take away that big pile of guaranteed money he's eventually going to get. Okay, fine. Next year, the Cowboys either pay him $37.68 million, or they sign him to a long-term contract, or they let him walk away in free agency. And he becomes the new, the new Kirk Cousins, who signs a three-year, $110 million contract or something like that on the open market. It's, it's good for him either way. Setting aside everything beyond 2020, the guy's getting $31.4 million this year. What's he got to be upset about? So uncertainty as to the future, but no uncertainty as to 2020, at least as it relates to who the quarterback will be for the Cowboys. We don't know whether or not they're going to play any games, but we do know that if they ultimately suit up and go, it will be Dak Prescott at quarterback all season long. We also know that Ezekiel Elliott will continue to be the starting running back of the Dallas Cowboys. Last year, he held out for most, if not all, of training camp and into the preseason to get the contract that he deserved based upon his first three years in the NFL. Now he's salty. And see, there's a lot of salty players right now between preseason rankings and Madden ratings. You know, the Madden ratings are generally worthless, except for the fact that they piss guys off and they give guys motivation. Kyler Murray's salty about his. Le'Veon Bell's salty about his. Well, Zeke is salty about something. He said, there are a lot of great backs in this league, but I don't understand why the media has to talk down on my game just to uplift other backs. We are all talented football players and can ball. Check the stats. Since I entered this league, I have dominated year in and year out. Put some respect on my name. Women lie, men lie. The stats don't. Go to your homework. Almost 1,800 scrimmage yards and 14 touchdowns with no training camp, and now I'm not the same back. I do appreciate the standard you guys hold me to, though, but I promise you no one holds me to a higher standard than myself. And he's right. He had a great year last year. He just wasn't the guy that he was his first three seasons, something Sims spotted early in the year. And it lasted all year long when he would get through to the second level. He didn't have that same explosion where he ran away from everybody. That 10 yard run didn't become a 50 yard run. So he still had a great year, but it could have been better. And maybe it wasn't as good as it could be because he didn't have the benefit of training camp. He went to Mexico while they were working out the contract and you know, anytime a guy misses that much time, there is a chance it's going to affect his performance. And think of how good he would have been if he'd been around for all of training camp. But he's still one of the great running backs in the NFL. And between him and Amari Cooper, who signed a contract to stay with the team, C.D. Lamb, their first round pick who fell into their laps, Dak Prescott, the offensive line, not as dominant as it was in recent years, but still pretty good. And maybe the defense better now. New coaching staff, new approach. Cowboys can end up being pretty good this year, again, if they end up playing any games at all. And here's hoping that they play all of their games, all 16, not 12, not 10, not 9, all 16, postseason maybe for the Cowboys, and we'll see how it all plays out. All right, we do know that this will be a different season in a lot of respects. If they do get all the regular season games in, there will be no fans at training camp. Teams had started to announce one by one that they won't have fans at training camp. And as every team did it, it was news. And I kind of took a step back and we had a little session with the PFT writers. And I said, hey, folks, I don't really think this is news. I think it's already been decided there won't be fans at training camp. I checked with the league and the league said, you're correct. No fans at training camp. All the teams can do this year. They can have up to two events at their stadium if local and state law allows it and if they can otherwise conduct the thing in compliance with NFL procedures and protocols. That's it. Two events at the stadium. Wherever you have your training camp, you're not going to have fans there this year, period. It's not going to happen. 
for any team, even if you're a team where you're in a location that has a, a drop in the COVID-19 cases and everything's fine and people wear their masks and they socially distance, there's going to be no fans at training camp anywhere. And obviously that's going to be a huge difference from past years. And Going to be lost money coming from that because you know the teams find a way to make a little money off of it. Although I don't think you, if you charge the, the rule, I, I need a refresher on this. At one point, if you charged for anything at camp, then scouts from other teams were allowed to be there. And I think Washington fell into that trap at one point several years ago. But they found a way to allow teams to make their money without an open invitation for other teams to show up for training camp and to scout their training camp practices. But uh, bottom line is the bottom line will be affected by fans not at training camp. And the, the money this year is going to come primarily from televised regular season games. Anything else that NFL teams over and above that is going to be a bonus, whether it's 20% capacity for games, 40%, whatever percent, 1%. It's going to be more than what they're otherwise going to make because I think you just have to go into the season assuming that no fans are going to be involved. And even if you can do these two events with fans present, how many teams are really going to be able to pull that off given where the pandemic currently is? I don't know how many fans of teams are going to want to show up for something like that in places where the virus currently is running roughshod, roughshod Sims. We're going to be ready for all the Sims-isms to return when we start PFT Live up again next week. All right, there's been some reporting that the NFL and the NFL Players Association are at odds over whether or not players who test positive for the virus will be on injured reserve or the non-football illness list. Now, the non-football illness list, if you put a player on that during the season, they're done for the year. And they potentially, if the team chooses not to pay them, don't get another penny. As of last night, ESPN was reporting that's still a sticking point. I had other people saying it's not a sticking point. We have a deal on what it's going to be. My understanding and this is all subject to league approval, but the deal between the league and the union will allow players to be placed on a short-term COVID-19 IR list. And then they come off of that list and go back to the roster. And while they are on that list, they will be replaced on the roster by someone else. The goal is to ensure that you have as many healthy bodies as possible. You have maximum flexibility. Now, the way it was explained to me, three weeks on the COVID-19 list, then you can return to practice. And once you get to the point where you can return to practice, you've got a three-week window to get back to the active roster. At the end of that three weeks, it's either active roster, injured reserve, or injury settlement, and the player leaves the team. I've heard some concerns from the player's perspective about why do you have to be shut down for three weeks on the front end? What if you're asymptomatic? What if within five days you can generate two negative tests? Why should you be kept off of the roster for three whole weeks simply because you tested positive and you have no symptoms? So there may be some lingering push and pull on the contours of the COVID-19 IR list. And frankly, if you're the team, why do you want to have your guys set aside for a minimum of three weeks? That doesn't make any sense if there is a way they can get back sooner than that. But that's where it currently stands. We'll see how that plays out. But the teams are not going to do anything to have rules that are so rigid that the players get screwed because it's not their fault if they test positive and you're never going to be able to prove that it didn't happen at work. So the players get paid, whatever the final rules are and the final rules will encourage the ability for teams to have as many players available as possible. 
You want to be able to withstand an outbreak. You want to be able to plug in other players. And you don't want a situation where your players who have tested positive are still taking up roster spots that could be devoted to players who are negative for the virus and who could come in, even if they're only there for a couple of weeks. And I think we'll also see some flexibility on the moves that are made on the practice squad. Already for this year, you can move guys, two of them, up and down without passing them through waivers. I suspect that maybe more guys from the practice squad will be eligible to go up to the active roster and then back down in the event of a COVID-19 positive designation without passing through waivers and giving another team a chance to pounce on a guy who goes from the active roster back to the practice squad. So, look, they get this all figured out if they want training camp to open. A lot of people are saying it really doesn't make sense to open training camp right now, especially in the cities that are in the midst of the greatest rate of increased cases like Houston, like Dallas, like Miami, like L.A. Whatever the final decision, we are at the point where decisions need to be made. And I'd say by this time tomorrow, when we do Friday's PFTPM, we should be at a point where we have a pretty good idea of what the rules are and what the rules aren't. So teams either will or won't be proceeding with training camp. And I will not be surprised if the end result is they decide to get rid of the preseason and bump everything back a couple of weeks and give everyone a chance to, to really prepare for what's to come. Because once they're there, they're there. You don't want to start it up and then shut it down. You want to wait until the point where you're confident you can get it rolling and it's going to work right. It's And if you rush, and this was the sentiment that J.J. Watt shared with us last week, if you rush when you shouldn't, you may have the season collapse when it otherwise We'll see how it all plays out. We're hoping for football season. Again, addressing the various hurdles the NFL faces does not in any way mean we are rooting against it. Why in the hell, and I almost said a word stronger than hell, would we root against it? We want football. We can't wait for football. And hopefully football will find a way to coexist with a pandemic that has gotten worse instead of better because there are too many stupid, selfish people out there who have failed to take this seriously, who have failed to do what they need to do. And those are going to be the people, as I said yesterday, who are complaining the most if there's no football. Let's all resolve to do what we need to do. Let's wear a mask. Let's stay home when we need to. Let's find a way to do the things that need to be done in the safest way possible. And let's hope that it's not too late to salvage football season. We take PFTPM earlier today. I guess this technically then becomes PFTPM PS because after we concluded our late afternoon session regarding, among other things, the situation in Washington, the Washington Post article finally has been published. And it identifies 15 former female employees who claim that they were sexually harassed during their time with the franchise. Now, only one of them is named. The other 14 have decided not to allow their names to be published because of non-disclosure agreements that were signed that expressly threatened potential litigation if they talk about things that happened while they work for the team. Now, to know more about what exactly would have been alleged by them to the team and therefore to allow us to know more about what maybe owner, owner Daniel Snyder knew at the time these agreements were negotiated, we'd have to know more about the specifics of the agreements. It's possible these are just general severance agreements that these individuals signed without ever making specific detailed allegations that would have put Daniel Snyder on notice that he has a problem. But the portrait painted by this story reasonably would have put him on notice that he has a problem. 
even though there are no specific allegations made against him, the three individuals who are named as having allegedly done things they shouldn't have done, Larry Michael, Alex Santos, Richard Mann II, all three of them have left the team in recent days. Michael, play-by-play voice of the team for 16 years, abruptly retired on Wednesday. And most people thought maybe it has something to do with his story. Clearly it did. Santos was the director of pro personnel. Mann was the assistant director of pro personnel. They were both fired over the weekend. So there have been consequences for the individuals who were accused of wrongdoing. You can reasonably conclude that whatever investigation the team did allowed it to conclude that the individuals were responsible for the things they were accused of doing. But no accusations against Snyder, no accusations against Bruce Allen, the longtime president of the team, which makes this situation different for Snyder than it was in Carolina several years ago for Jerry Richardson, when the founder of the team had to abruptly sell the team after it came out that there were multiple non-disclosure agreements based upon allegations of misconduct, all of which trace back to him. In this case, there's nothing tracing back specifically to Snyder. But the problem is this. Everything traces back to Snyder generally. He's not an absentee landlord like other owners who live in one city and own a team in a different city. He's there. He's present. This is his culture. This is his organization. He's been the owner for 21 years. If he's not aware of the things that are happening under his watch, then he's clueless. And see, in order to avoid significant scrutiny from the league office or his business partners who own the other 31 franchises, Snyder essentially has to characterize himself as being completely and totally clueless as to the things happening in his building. And that's going to be hard to pull off. The article creates the impression that this all began at the top. This atmosphere began at the top. How employees are treated. Specific allegation of Daniel Snyder berating a male employee. No allegation of sexual misconduct against a female employee, but comments made allegedly by Snyder that would then trickle down. Because, see, the person who runs the organization does indeed set the tone. And it's fair to infer that the tone that was set by Snyder was indeed copied, mimicked, perpetuated by the people working under him. And the bottom line is, if it was as prevalent as these 15 individuals would seem to suggest, Snyder surely knew, or at a minimum, should have known what was going on. So what happens moving forward? We watch and see what the reaction to this story is, how much pressure it creates for the Washington franchise, how much pressure it places on the league and on other teams to account. Will that be enough to force the kind of action that would result in Snyder selling the team? This is why he's hired an outside lawyer to come in and conduct this investigation. He wants the end result to be Daniel Snyder is blameless. Daniel Snyder knew nothing about these specific activities. Daniel Snyder had no reason to go in and clean up a mess because he didn't know a mess existed. Again, to sell that, he's going to have to be willing to make himself look clueless. Either way, it's not a good look. And either way, depending upon how things unfold, it's the kind of situation that could create serious problems for his ongoing ownership of the team. We'll surely have more about this tomorrow on PFTPM and throughout the rest of the evening and into Friday at ProFootballTalk.com. Have a great evening. We'll talk again tomorrow.